Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Second Amendment and gun violence. So, Richard, we continue to return to this issue of mass shootings, uh, alas. Most recently, we had this terrible event at a community college in Oregon, nine people plus the shooter dead. And that always brings us back to questions about the Second Amendment and gun rights. So wh why don't we start here um, and just sort of set the background for this. One of the most significant cases regarding guns in recent years was the Supreme Court's decision in D.C. versus Heller back in 2008. Um, explain the impact of that case, just the basic explainer for our audience and, and also your response to it because I know you're a little unorthodox amongst people on the right on this question. Yeah, well, first of all, on the legal question, I think the decision that Justice Scalia entered into is completely wrong. Um, this has nothing to do with my attitude on guns and gun control. Um, the single most complicated issue in terms of the distribution of powers under the federal constitution, strangely enough, has to do with the militia or the state-organized um, military arms that are to be set in opposition, if it need be, uh, to the uh, federal national army. And the way the Constitution says is that we states can organize militias and they have their own generals and their own thing. But they could also be called up into federal services and then we see the checks and balances going into play. It turns out the president cannot unilaterally call them up. He must get authorization from Congress before it could be done. And the authorization can only be done for three purposes associated with invasion, um, rebellion and disunion. Uh, so it's relatively narrow. You could not call them up, for example, in the traditional view to send them over to Europe in World War I or into Honduras in the struggles that took place in the late Reagan years. So it's a pretty limited set of powers. And then there's a distribution of control over the military. What happens is the local guys are in charge of it, but they have to train them in terms of a discipline, i.e. a regiment, which is set by the national government. And the theory there is the unions have to be interoperable with one another so that the standard regiment of training is there. Uh, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment comes in and it begins with this state, you know, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. Well, they're clearly referring to the uh, situation as it exists under the militia clauses, which are found in Article 1. And the reason it's needed for the security of a free state is to protect the state against invasions by other states, which was a big deal at the time of the founding, and also to give the state some way to back up and to fight the federal government if push comes to shove. And so it seems quite clear that what the militia is designed to do, or the militia clause, is to make sure that the federal government cannot intrude upon state autonomy in the way in which it organizes its militia. So you get to a case like Heller, which involves the D.C., there's no federal-state relationships. There's no pushback. There's no trade-off. And so the correct way to think about it is the militia clause has no applicability whatsoever there. What Justice Scalia does is he chops out the first words about the well-regulated militia, looks only at the second half, now applies it to D.C. and says, well, the right is not absolute, and then applies what you would call some kind of a uncertain to be sure exactly what intermediate standard, which is much higher than it was before. So I think this is very dubious with respect to the legal issue. Now, what was the second question, Troy? Let's just take a break. That had to do with? 
Well, that that was actually that was the entirety of the first question. Okay, was the uh, the Heller case, and I actually want to take you now to some of the sort of the present arguments that we're having about this. Because, for example, every time something like this happens, you hear arguments on the left that come like clockwork from President Obama, for example, that these incidents could all be prevented with what they call common sense gun laws. Is is that your sense of it, that there are relatively modest reforms that could be made that could have a meaningful effect on the number of these sort of spectacular – and I obviously don't mean that in a, in a normative way, but these big spectacular incidents that take place? I think it's just completely incorrect. I mean the president is a lousy empiricist and this is the basic <laughs> problem that you face. Um, what you want to do is to figure out how you get a set of rules that will deal with one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. Any common sense device can not deal with outliers at that dimension. And so all you have to do is deposit somebody who's intent upon engaging in this kind of senseless mayhem and then ask you, does he have to go to a gun store in order to buy it? No. He could get one from his friends. He can unlock a cabinet that his parents have guns in. He can find an abandoned gun in a warehouse and fix it up and use it. So if you have 300 odd million guns in the United States, uh, this fellow, if he's determined to do these things, will come up with one of them. So the thought that changing the basic pattern will influence this seems to me to be odd. Uh, the second point that one wants to make is when you're trying to evaluate deaths, there's a real salience feature here. So that suppose you had 10 individual killings that took place on the same day that there was this terrible killing in Oregon. Um, and you try to figure out what the news coverage of that's going to be. It's going to be one one millionth of the coverage with respect to the mass killing, even though the same number of people are dead. So when you're trying to figure out what you do in order to stop things, I think the correct objective function is to figure out how you reduce the number of people who die from gun-related accidents and from other forms of mayhem, suicide, and murder. And that means that you want to look at the other 99.9% of the killings that start to take place and see what can be done about them. And as far as I can tell, nothing that you want to impose by way of these common sense situations will change this appreciably. And the other point that one wants to mention is that if you actually look at the rate of gun deaths in the United States and the rate of other kinds of deaths in the United States, these are sharply down by about 50% if memory serves me well from what they were in 1993. And you know, you're trying to figure out what the determinants are. Um, I would put very little on the gun laws. I would put more on stop and frisk more on arrest rates, more on certain incarceration, longer incarceration and punishment, um, and maybe some on the fact that you have some street-level activities that take place in various communities which allow cooperation between the police and the community leaders um, to ostracize and therefore reduce the frequency of gun guys. But the thought that somehow or other the legislation is going to do this uh, strikes me as being completely improbable relative to the other things. And indeed, with respect to the way in which you stop mass killings, I mentioned this on Law Talk earlier, um, by and large following the Israeli solution in which people who know how to use weapons are allowed to carry them in what are now gun-free zones is probably a safer and more efficacious way of achieving that particular objective. You want, as John Lott used to say, carefully controlled more guns in order to secure less crime. Richard, another argument that you'll get from the left a lot is that the kind of firearms that the Second Amendment contemplated were so different in degree as to be almost different in kind that the Founding Fathers could never have anticipated the sort of devices that are now protected under the law. Is, is that, does that even qualify as a legal argument? Is that compelling to you? 
No, look, remember, my view about Heller is that it's a mistake. And if hell is a mistake, I don't have to try to figure out what it means to keep in bare arms um, in order to figure out the scope of constitutional protection that doesn't exist. Um, but if you start to sort of look at it as an administrative matter and try to ask what's going to happen, um, you have to face the unpleasant reality that uh, basically one-third of the killings in the United States do not use any kind of guns at all. And in fact, the worst mass killing that we had domestically uh, was a situation that happened in Tulsa a long time ago at the Murrah Courthouse, and that was done by explosives which were gotten from common kinds of products. So one of the problems that you always worry about when somebody says, let's go after guns, is not only is there going to be a reduction maybe in gun deaths, but it also may turn out to be that there'll be an increase in other kinds of deaths. And there's another effect. In Oregon, you know, people started to talk about severe restrictions, and the response on the part of many people who believe that guns are important for self-defense, they may be wrong about that, was to go out and to try to buy them in record quantities. And right. since guns are easily concealed and easily moved, um, if you try to stop them in one case, they will pop up in another case. So I think, in effect, the kinds of precautions you need are not the ones that can be avoided. And if you start talking about not only better policing, but having people on the scene who know how to use weapons carrying them, that's the sort of thing that any person who's contemplating using a gun will take into account. And my guess is it will probably have general effectiveness under these circumstances. So as I look at this stuff, I think the uh, politics completely dominates the, the sociology. As I said, I'm not a gun fan myself. It's not a thing that I do like or understand. I'm not saying that I want to hold a gun, but I can assure you I would rather be in a public place in which if I thought there was some degree of danger uh, that all the off-duty policemen and women and all the military types who knew how to use firearms were there. Now, as to the constitutional argument, the right to keep and bear arms, I think, means you have to be able to think of the arms that could be born, and that does not include you know, artillery of some kind or another or a bazooka gun. I think it basically means handguns and rifles, and you know, these are much more efficient than they used to be, but I can't believe it's a constitutional argument, assuming that Heller is correct to say, well, you know, it was okay to keep and bear arms when they were muskets, but now that they are side loaders of one kind or another, can't have them at all. That seems to me to be the most rigid and artificial form of constitutional interpretation imaginable. Uh, what you really have to ask is under the current framework is to whether or not the dangers associated with various kinds of weaponry are so large uh, that they give the state a justification to curtail a federal constitutional right. That jurisprudence is right now tremendously murky because there's so many different kinds of laws that very active legislatures are trying to put into place that it's very difficult to sort them out and to put them in some kind of linear fashion. So the last question that I'll pose to you, Richard, I've given you some of the talking points from the left. Let me give you one from the right. When we talk especially about mass shootings, um, one of the points that's brought up fairly often is the idea that your core problem when you really drill down into it is mental health. And so two questions from that. The first, do you agree with that? The second, uh, how much confidence do you have that public policy can have a major effect in addressing that problem? Well, the, this is a very contentious area because there's no question that there's been a real tectonic sea shift in the willingness to, to incarcerate through civil commitment for people who hold out dangers to themselves or to other people. This was a relatively common practice when I was in law school and you always worried about how at the edge you would stop it constitutionally. But now there's a huge reluctance on grounds of privacy and so forth to intervene even in cases of people who've exhibited dangerous kinds of behavior. And so given 
removing all of that stuff, I mean, it's quite clear that things have certainly changed and probably for the worse. But I'm not so sure that it's the mass killing that is associated with this. I mean, I think it's much more likely that somebody's going to get angry at a spouse or a child and so forth and play something out within a family. When you start looking at the descriptions of the people who engage in some of these mass killings, typically they're quiet, they're loners, sometimes they're thought to be nice kids who have never gotten into trouble before. Uh, If you try to basically take a thousand of these people and put them in a pool with another thousand people who have not done things, randomly chosen, well, how many of them would you be able to pick out? And my guess is it would be relatively few that you can do it. So I'm not saying I'm against uh, the reform of the mental health system, and I think that some modest increase in the number of incarcerations on, on civil commitment grounds may make sense, but I don't think that there's any close connection here. If there is a close connection to murders, it's much more likely to happen with respect to non-mass killings, because remember, you know, there are lots of mass incidents that take place. Um, four people could be subject to knife wounds in a single day and so forth, and, but there are not that many mass killings. I mean, I think the only one that I've heard of this year is the one in Oregon. Correct me if I'm wrong, that's 10 people, and we probably have several thousand people killed in this particular period. So focusing on mass killings may get you political salience. What it doesn't get you is the reduction in lives lost for guns. And for that, I think you have to look for other kinds of policies. And since this is an issue in which you can't be a dogmatic libertarian and say the state has no interest in preventing murder by people who have weapons, what you actually have to do is to listen closely and try to figure out what the pluses and minuses are of different alternatives. And that's exactly what you don't see in the president. In his usual dogmatic way, the man who knows basically nothing about this particular problem claims to have the secret locked up inside of his benevolent chest. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. Hoover.org.